1: SRN Survival Radio Network. Ooh,
3: oh yeah.
1: Welcome to the Weekly Wellness Show. I guess if you're on Central Time, you are having a great morning. And if you are on Eastern Time, you are having a great afternoon or about to. Hopefully, you have had a great breakfast. You know, maybe you've got your exercise in. But either either way, we're glad to have you, and we welcome you to the Weekly Wellness Show your resource for better health. I am your host, pharmacist, physician, entrepreneur, Dr. Aaron Williams. This show is brought to you live and by podcast on the Survival Radio Network. Now, as I always say, I hope you had a great week. I hope it was a healthy week. Today, I hope that you have planned some fun because it is the weekend, Also plan some exercise. Hopefully it's outside. You know, let's take advantage of this while we can because it's going to be winter in a bit. And let's also plan for some healthy food. Remember, your health is your wealth. Hey, I'd like to also welcome our new Facebook members from Ethiopia. Uh, We welcome you to the show. We welcome your comments. Actually, I was invited to Ethiopia by Dr. Gudata Hanika. He is a surgeon in the Najili RC area, and he started a hospital. He practices here in the United States, but he's from Ethiopia, obviously. But he started a hospital there, 100-bed hospital that opened in July. So he sent an invitation to me, uh, because I do do some consulting work, to help start a cancer program in Ethiopia. So hopefully we'll be traveling there in a few months. Next month I'll be going to Ghana to do the. Same thing, but welcome to everyone listening from Ethiopia. Now, last week, we had a great show. You know, I had Dr. Lakeisha White-Richardson on, and we talked about breast cancer. As you know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we, t- we continue our conversation. We had a couple shows on this prior to last week. We talked specifically about early detection. I think the week before, we talked about the relationship between obesity and cancer and as well as breast cancer in general. So if you missed that show, please go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, The podcast is on our Facebook page, and you can also go to the Survival Radio Network website and also grab that podcast. Coach Bruce was also on. He gave us some more fitness tips. So we've had some great shows, some dynamic guests, uh, if you missed any of these, go to www.weeklywellnessshow.com and then scroll down to the on-demand section. You'll see our orange and green logo, and we've got several topics that you can listen to. Uh, you can listen to during the week. And guess what? If there's any topics that someone else might be interested in, don't hesitate to share that with someone. We're also on iTunes as well. I encourage you to subscribe to the show. That way the show comes to your phone automatically at no charge. Now next week I got a great topic coming up with a great guest, you know. Next week is gonna be the end of breast cancer awareness month. So we're gonna close out that month, this month, wind down the month talking about male breast cancer. Yeah. I know you're thinking about it, but Men get breast cancer, too. It's not something that's very common, but it does happen. In fact, about 500 or so men will die this year of breast cancer. So Dr. Denise Gooch, a good colleague and friend of mine, a radiation oncologist, will be on next week. And she's going to discuss male breast cancer. So if you have any questions or topics or ideas, don't hesitate to email me at Dr. Aaron Williams at weeklywellnessshow.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Williams. And, again, you can join our Facebook page. Now, today we have another exciting and informative show for you along with an interesting topic and dynamic guest. You know, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, over 116,000 are in need of a life-saving organ transplant, 75,000 of them are actually on the waiting list. So there's a lot of people that need a life, an organ to save their life. In fact, last year, unfortunately, 7,000 people died while on the waiting list to receive an implant. And what we've also found is that every 10 minutes, someone is being added to the National Transplant waiting list. So about the day we tackle this important topic, maybe do a little education as to why an implant or transplant is needed, why everyone needs to consider donation, at least consider it. But sometimes when we get educated about a topic, that helps us to understand. So I have invited transplant surgeon as well as director of the liver Transplant Program at St. Luke's in Kansas City, Dr. Eddie Island on the show. He's going to be on our second segment. And our first segment, we're going to have wellness expert, Carmen Lazan. She's going to be talking to us about fitness and diet. You know, we're going to continue this conversation that Coach Bruce has been doing, and Carmen Lazan is going to be on today. We're going to talk about how to maintain your fitness, and she's going to give us some more tips. But first, I'd like to go to our first commercial break. So, hey, ladies and gentlemen, please stay tuned and be informed.
0: Looking for a cafe with a home-like appeal where all who enter feel like they are part of something? Visit My Coffee Shop, located in East Lake, Atlanta, Georgia. MCS has a full breakfast and lunch menu, offering both hot and cold options, and is home of the amazing basil lemonade. But don't forget their assortment of freshly brewed coffees. Come on by at 2462 Memorial Drive, Atlanta, Georgia, 30317. We're pretty sure my coffee shop at East Lake will become your coffee shop too. I Dope.
3: IDope. Globally inspired vision styleware. A fusion of classic heritage and contemporary sophistication. An essential part of your lifestyle and fashion expression. I Dope i Dope. Vision styleware for the fashion forward and socially conscious. Let's make this a dope world together. iDope, iDope, available online at iDope.com. That's E-Y-E-D-O-P-E, iDope.com.
1: Survival
3: Radio Network, with now more than 1 million downloads. Congratulations
0: to the staff, producers, engineers, and hosts for your tireless pursuit of excellence. And thank you, our loyal listeners, for supporting this movement to inspire, motivate, and educate people worldwide. Survival Radio Network, Survival Radio Christian Network, and our new Survival Sports
3: Radio Network broadcast top-notch shows Sunday through Saturday. Check us out by visiting our website at www.survivalradionetwork.us.
0: SRN, we do radio one million strong.
3: The SRN. Welcome
1: back. Welcome back. It is so great to have you joining us today. You are listening to the Weekly Wellness Show, your resource for. Better health here on the Survival Radio Network. I am your host, Dr. Aaron Williams. You know, before the commercial break, I mentioned to you the fact that we were going to continue our fitness segment and talk about how we can maintain this and correlate this with our diet. And we thought, of, of, you know, and Coach Bruce talked last week about, you know, tackling your weaknesses. You know, when you develop your plan, your fitness plan. You need to not only set your goals, but also he mentioned identifying your weaknesses and challenging them and planning for them. So I thought it would be great to have an expert on today to talk about this. So I've asked Carmen Lazan to come on to the show to talk to us about some of the triggers, you know, when you're in those certain situations or you have certain foods or restaurants that you got to have, like for me. One of my biggest weaknesses, is Krispy Kreme donuts, okay? You know, when the light is on, bells go on in my brain with regard to, hey, I want, or at least I crave, to have a warm Krispy Kreme donut. Those in the South know what I'm talking about. So it's those type of triggers I wanted to address. So I wanted to have someone on the show to help us plan for that and come up with a solution. So therefore, without further ado, let's welcome to the show... Wellness expert, Carmen Lizanne.
2: Good morning, or should I say good afternoon? How are you?
1: (laughs) Good afternoon. I'm doing quite well. I'm so glad that you have been able to put us on your busy schedule. I know you're doing a lot to help keep people healthy, keep people well. But I thought we'd have uh, a good chat about how to handle these triggers? For example, like I mentioned, you know, I'm a, you know, when I pass by a donut shop, it's hard. I've been doing well, but it's hard. But, you know, Carmen, how do you, you know, what are some of the things we can do with handling these type of temptations? Well, that's a great
2: question. Um, the, I, the first thing is to know that you have triggers.
1: So it's a good
2: thing to be conscientious of where your weaknesses are. Um, so knowing what those situations are, and especially like we know we're coming into that holiday season where we're going to be around family, friends, constantly, there's going to be food everywhere, okay, your offices, your break rooms. often people have leftover, you know, half a pie that they want to leave out. <laughs> so these things, these temptations are going to come quickly. And for other people, you know, you have different triggers, stress, et cetera. So we're going to go through some of these, um, so just knowing what some of these situations are uh, will help you right. develop some strategies to actually overcome them. So, you know, right. you all should think about which areas are most important for you. So the first thing we'll talk about is sometimes we link certain activities with eating. So think about when you watch TV or mm-hmm. you're scrolling through the Internet or um, these types of of activities, ones where you always seem to have a snack at hand, that you're always reaching your hand into something. Um, Popcorn. While you're at your desk. <laughs> I'm sorry?
1: Mm-hmm. Popcorn. Oh, so you're... <laughs> <laughs> <That's>... <laughs>
2: exactly. While you're preparing food for your family or preparing dinner for yourself, are you snacking throughout the whole time? So it's mm. easy to take in some of those excess calories without even realizing it. So thinking about that um, and trying to keep track of everything that you eat, where you eat, when you eat. For some people, it's, you know, they go through the drive through and they may end up eating half of it on the way home and not even thinking about it. So just being more um, aware and trying to eat more consciously. So, you, can, you know, it can be eye-opening when you realize exactly how much you are snacking mm-hmm. in between meals. Um, and so trying to track that is a good way to think about um, monitoring that and also thinking of other substitute behaviors that you can um, replace that with. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the second trigger would be some favored food. So think about are there certain foods that you just can't eat in moderation? Again, we all know ourselves, mm. for some people it may be sweets. You know, there's some people mm-hmm. who crave sweets. There's some people who crave salt. And then there are people who go back and forth. So they just want that change. Um, and, you know, you have to think about right. the emotional connection to that as well. So we talk about that a little bit more. Um, but certain foods just trigger, you know, whether it's the smell of it or the sight of it, and tempts you to overeat. So in right. that case, you want to make sure you keep exposure to those foods at a minimum. So starting with you know they say, don't grocery shop on an empty stomach. everything will be tempting to you at that point, so mm-hmm. uh, you want to not even bring it in the house if it's possible. uh, I know for me, you know I can't I have this thing with these blue corn tortilla chips, okay so those <laughs> that's my salt, okay. <laughs> and so, or the sweet potato chips. so if I buy those, I already know you know they may not last in the house, so these are things that you have to think about. Um, and if you do bring it in the house, maybe try to portion them out up front. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. hard to think about portion size, but, you know, I've done this in the past where you literally open the bag and you put all your little smaller Ziplocs and, and get a kitchen scale. They're not that expensive. You can get them for uh-huh. 10 to $15 in, you know, your online shopping stores, et cetera. So way out. Portion that out. Right.
1: That's a good lock. idea. Then, yeah, but, yeah, particularly, then put those, but Particularly if you shop at like Costco or some of these places where you mm-hmm. buy things in bulk, and now exactly. you're sitting or wherever you store it, you got all these like you know the, the two pound bag of chips, you know, next to your, mm-hmm. on your kitchen counter. That's something you probably need to think about as far as dividing that up. Because I can see if you're in, you know, you're enjoying a good movie, hey, or enjoying a football game because it's football season. You can mm-hmm. easily. Chomp through those. So I, I like that Absolutely. idea of kind of individual individualizing that.
2: Exactly. Okay. Make your own little snack packs. You know, they charge more for exactly. those little hundred calorie packs, whatever. Oh and, you know, yeah. something You really want to have and just make your own. The other thing is when you're out uh, with friends, for example. Um, I think I actually did this yesterday. So we, you know, we went out to lunch and mm-hmm. instead of ordering, you know, major sides of fries and everything else, we actually split. We were able to split our meals. So I was able to say, Mm -hmm. yes, I'll have this particular sandwich. And instead of having a side of fries, I was able to split and say half salad, half fries. Now, not everyone's going to do that, but it really made me feel like, okay, I got a little bit of everything. I had more Mm -hmm. of a balanced meal. So splitting out your meals if possible or splitting with a friend, uh, you know, people do that quite a bit with desserts because sometimes the portions are pretty big. So you'll say, hey, let's split a dessert. So this way you're not mm. getting the whole thing yourself. The right. next thing is, again, looking at the time of day. So are there certain times uh-huh. of the day that you're more susceptible? Um, is it right after work? Is it late night?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so just identifying those vulnerable times during the day and trying to figure mm-hmm. out, are you really hungry? Or, you know, if that's a fact, then you probably want to have something that's more nutritious, actually. Um, you know, some fruits or nuts or whole wheat crackers, something that will actually sustain you. Um, and, again, just trying to figure out, is it that you're stressed out and anxious? Maybe a cup of tea or a relaxing mm-hmm. would help with that time of day, like right before bed.
1: Right. Um, it could be just boredom. But, yeah, exactly. yeah, that's a good idea, the timing. Yeah.
2: As we talk about, the social settings again certain people you know you may connect with people over food and that's something that you know is part of society um Mm -hmm. you have to look at different cultures i mean food is a connection almost just about every culture but how you eat when you eat and the other activities are important as well so just looking at what types of food you eat um when you're around certain people um do you snack when your partner snacks um Uh You know, when you go to social outings, is it a nonstop, all-you-can-eat festival, and everyone says, hey, y'all, we're just having a good time, but then you may think about it tomorrow and feel guilty. So just trying to, you know, if you're on a weight loss plan and you're making that effort, you need to also recognize when social influence plays that role in your eating habits. Right. And also realize that you can be, I mean, sometimes it may be hard up front, but you can also be that example that doesn't necessarily waver just because you're out with friends. So you can still order right. what you would normally order. And just, you, you have to stand strong. So when people are like, oh, you don't need to diet. <laughs> or, oh, you know, oh, stand just live drunk. a little.
1: <laughs> right. You, know, you they, they, come they, up they with some that.
2: pre-planned excuses of right. why you
1: want to be healthy. <laughs> My favorite one that I hear is from friends is, well, you got to diet something. I'm like, really? Come on. <laughs> can we come up with a better one.
3: Well,
2: yeah,
1: so, yeah, exactly. you're right. That, that's yeah. true. That's true. Well, great. Uh, well, hey, those are some great tips uh, that we can all keep in mind. Again, ladies and gentlemen, today we're tackling those weaknesses. We're tackling uh, the mindset of when you get put into a certain situation, how to handle that. And these are some of the things that I think uh, Carmen has, has helped us outline today. So, Carmen, I, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show. You know we've got to have you back at some point on another exciting topic, but well, thank you again for, for carving out and putting us on the schedule uh, to come on the week well show. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll go to our second commercial break. So stay tuned. Hey, and don't go and get, a, don't go get any chips now. And be informed.
0: You have a business, product, service, or an event coming up. Is your current marketing getting you nowhere? Survival Radio Network is an award-winning network with over 1 million downloads. We're offering high-exposure 30-second spots on our network, reaching diverse demographics both locally and nationwide. Give us a call at 323-977-8172 or visit our website at today. SRN, we do radio. That's www.lbtaxservice.com. L&B Tax Service Incorporated. Tax professionals that you can trust.
3: Do you know that having a dirty filter in your heating and air system can cause major damage to your unit and include the air in your home? Having proper maintenance to your heating and air system is just like getting a tune-up on your car. Because you'll want today and avoid spending unnecessary money tomorrow. Call Temperature Design Heating and Air today. 770-823-7160.
0: That's 770-823-7160. Hi, I'm Ryan Seacrest for RAD. Over 300 people in this country are killed every week by a drunk driver. That's the equivalent of two 747 plane crashes every single week. And the problem isn't going away unless we all do our part to stop it. So if you see someone who's about to drive after drinking,
2: get the keys. Don't leave it up to anyone else. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters and the Ad
3: Council. The S are hit.
1: Welcome back. You are listening to the Weekly Wellness Show, your resource for better health here on the Survival Radio Network. I am honored to be your host, Dr. Aaron Williams. In our second segment today, we're going to go ahead and have a discussion on some of the statistics that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. And I mentioned the fact that over 116,000 people right now are on waiting list for an organ transplant in fact every 10 minutes someone is being added to the national transplant waiting list now we're going to further discuss this uh, but you know we are somewhat improving as a nation but we still have a lot of work to do and what we want to convey today that is one organ donor can save eight lives now I always like to bring an expert on the show to talk about these kind of things, and I'm grateful that I have someone today. We're going to have Dr. Eddie Island. He is a board-certified transplant surgeon in Kansas City, Missouri. He finished medical school at the Yale University School of Medicine. He did his residency, surgical residency, at the University of California in San Francisco, and did a fellowship at the Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Burlington, Massachusetts. Now, he's also done some post-surgical training in China. So he's done some international work. He has some interest involving laparoscopic surgery as well as robotic surgery. And he's published a number of articles in peer-reviewed journals, and he's currently working on his master's degree in business administration at the university of tennessee so it's been an exciting review in my preparation for this topic and i'm so excited to have dr island on to the show so without further ado let's welcome to the show dr eddie island
0: hi thank you i'm glad to be here
1: well hello dr island um Hopefully, you're not on call this weekend, but, you know, if you are, I understand. <laughs> um, I, 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 you know, I, I'm so glad. First of all, welcome to the Week of Wellness Show. Uh, we, we're so glad to have you to talk about this very important topic. Uh, but I said what I said was because I remember as a medical student rotating during surgery, and I was on the transplant team for a bit. I, I remember... You know, just being on call, uh, we were waiting on what an organ to come in, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't. And when it did, you know, we had to go ahead and, and get into the hospital if we were not already in the hospital and get things done and get that patient taken care of. So I'm so glad you're able to join us today. Um, so what was? You know, I guess we could start by relaying the folks, you know, what is an organ transplant, and why would someone why would someone need it?
0: Sure, uh, organ transplant is is relatively unique in the in the field of medicine in that unlike most situations where you are trying to manage a disease, when you you're trying to or you're trying to manage the effects of a disease, you know patients who who qualify for organ transplant have a, a failure of a certain organ, and, and rather than just sort of try to manage that failure through time, you have an opportunity to instead replace the organ, and so it's like a restart or a refresh, and, and, and it can really give people a, a fresh shot at life. Um, so rather than just sort of dealing with the complications and, and an inevitable deterioration, you, you, it's, it's like hitting the reset button. Well, your kidney's not working. We're giving you a new one. And, um, and you know, we're going to, we're going to try again and go forward and and have a new opportunity.
1: Right. Yeah. It's that second chance option that so many people, uh, need to take advantage of, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah. And it's great that, that your specialty has evolved so much, and we're doing so much better with regard to technology regarding to this. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I, I got excited just in reading up on this in order to prepare to do for this show uh, the organs that can be transplanted. Can you uh, tell us about some, tell us some of the organs that, that can be transplanted uh, now in 2017?
0: Sure. Right now, there's a a wide variety of organs that that we can utilize for transplant. The majority of people on the waiting list are are waiting for for kidneys, and and that has to do with the the absolute preponderance of of end-stage kidney disease. Um, But in terms of the different organs, kidneys can be transplanted, livers can be transplanted, um, the pancreas is, is also able to be transplanted. In the chest, the heart and the lungs can be transplanted. Intestines can be transplanted for patients with either short bowel syndrome or intestinal failure, and now there 's a, a new kind of frontier in, in transplant which it 's called uh, vascularized composite allografts, which is a lot of words, but it 's basically tissue transplants and that 's when an arm or a hand or, or the face has been transplanted wow and, it's, and it involves microsurgery to reconnect both the blood vessels and the and the nervous system into these into these different um, tissue components to try to restore function
1: wow so even hand and face or components of that can be used uh if need be Uh, and i guess that would you know be you know let's say in situations where there's significant injury to these areas or or maybe a burn patient um am i correct is that you know uh, some of the areas that or type of patient that would benefit from that
0: Yes, that's that's correct. It's it's usually uh, injury or or loss of of one of these areas, and then you 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 go in with uh, with these microsurgical techniques, and and uh, and again, you're you're trying to restore function and give people uh, give people a fresh shot at life. That's sort of the the newest frontier of transplantation, but it's a very exciting one.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, you know, I alluded to the fact earlier that the waiting list was was uh, was kind of long, and I noted that you know. Some people uh, have some reservations. You know, today I want to kind of like this, you know, address some of those myths that some people may have about, you know, being a candidate uh, for uh, a transplant. Um, you know, like, for example, I read that age is really not necessarily a factor. In fact, you know, one article that mentioned the fact that the old, one of the oldest people uh, that have been a donor, um, uh, I'm speaking from a donor perspective, uh, was like 93 years old so you know with regard to being the candidate to be a donor oh uh, what what about is age a factor? Have you found that to be that in your practice
0: really age 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 isn't a factor, but with age comes you mm-hmm. know a, an increasing probability that that there could be other things that can rule people out, so as somebody moves forward in age, you know, they they may they will likely come under more scrutiny to, to look for these things. But you know, uh-huh. there's a lot of people who say, well, I can't do this because of my age. And well well that's just not true. You know, there are are people who are are young and maybe quite ill and wouldn't be candidates for for to be donors and people who are old and, and or older and, and are, are excellent candidates. And the the other thing I'd I'd like to point out is um you know as as we already mentioned you know one donor can save eight lives right and 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 that mm. means that there's mm. there's different things that that can be donated and so somebody might have a problem with their heart but have have excellent livers and kidneys, and those can go forward and save lives. Somebody can can have um, you know other issues with other organs, but you know maybe the tissues or the corneas can be used. There's there's many different ways in which in which the people who are willing to give this gift of life can can really revolutionize or 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 or, or save others and through the process. Mm-hmm.
1: That's an excellent point. So you're saying that, you know, uh just because you may have one medical condition may not uh exclude you from being a donor and you really need to further uh, uh have a physician or someone assess that scenario and 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 open your mind up to possibly being a donor. That's that's excellent. Um well, what about what about religion and that kind of thing? Have you found that to be a big deal? I mean, I noticed the human, Department of Human Services actually has a, a great set of articles on religion, and it goes through every predominant religion, and it talks about you know whether or not that religion agrees with the process of organ donation. Have you seen that play out in the transplant world?
0: Yes, yes, I have. I mean, first, I would just like to emphasize that all of the major religions are supportive of organ donation and and transplantation. And so I, I think um, that really shouldn't be a, a barrier. But, you know, on the front lines, we, we also see that, you know, not just religions, but different cultural perceptions can can affect right. someone's willingness to donate or someone's willingness to, to participate. There are, are certain um, groups that have, you know, more trust of the medical system and other groups that have less trust of the medical system. There are um, areas in, in religion where um, where they there's still some people who, who won't necessarily recognize brain death or, or who who – um, you know, have very strong opinions about about the way someone you know should be approached or dealt with. You know, after after they've passed on, and uh, and so yeah, it, it's it still happens that there are there can be obstacles to donation that that are, are rooted in, in people's faith or, or their perceptions of what's happening, and and culture barriers that make make people less willing to participate. Right.
1: That's you know that's one of those things that's probably one of the biggest things i've I've heard at least as a physician, and you know not not a lot of times the transplant uh conversation comes up, but apparently it does, so I thought that would be something that you know I want to just allay to people that you know most of the religions, like you said, are open to this and it's not necessarily a barrier um to their you know religious beliefs now dr island how is how are how how are matches and donors put together? with regard to your organ being matched with someone who could be a recipient. Is that computer-based? And um, I guess I want to tackle the myth that, you know, only rich people get, you know, organs. Only famous people get organs. If they're rich and famous, you get an organ faster. Um, uh, How's the system and how does it get away from any type of bias with regard to selection? (laughs)
0: Right, so so all the organs are are allocated based on a, a specific algorithm. A, a lot of people think that there is a that there is a
1: transplant
0: list, and and you have a position on the list, and an organ becomes available, and it it goes to number one, and then that person's off the list, and then number two becomes number one, and and that person's next. But it, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. What, what happens is for every organ that's available, there is a list that is generated that is particular to that organ, and then patients are considered as potential candidates for that organ in the order in which they appear on the list. So on that list, the, the person who's in sp- slot number one will be considered first, and that person's surgeons and doctors will decide that yes or no, this is or is not a good opportunity for my patient and so uh, often it's not the first person who shows up is the one that gets the organ but the higher you are in what's called the match run the greater probability that that you have to to match a successful organ right
1: uh, so it's it's, it's they, so you all have put in and systems have been developed to make sure that you know because at the end result is the match needs to be as as close or as perfect as possible, or we're going to be talking about rejection. So I think um, everyone should know that this is not just some random selection, some random scenario. Uh, a lot of data, a lot of uh, consideration has been done in order to make sure this process flows efficiently. Well, Dr. Allen, what about cost? Um, you know that that might be another barrier, and I'm not sure what you're in Kansas City. I know you all have have had uh, almost like uh, what's been described as a crisis there. W- what have you all done, or how do you explain that to people with regard to hey, well, you know, this is probably going to cost cost me money to be a donor. Uh,
0: how do you address that? Well, it, it, it's it's there's. Um... Well first of all in terms of in terms of donation you know i i, I mm. there's there is what's called living donation and there's deceased donation. And uh, the majority of organs that we use come from people who've passed away. Now, not everyone who passes away uh-huh. is an appropriate candidate to be a donor, only people who pass away in certain types of ways. And so that's why the, the, the donors are very limited in number, and there's many more people that need organs than we have the organs to give, and that's why there's a wait list, and that's why, unfortunately, people die waiting for a transplant. Now, as a way to try to save more of these people, there is a a Second process for living donation, and living donation is when friends, family, or or relatives of the patient will volunteer to undergo an operation where they have either one of their organs or a piece of their organ removed to be used for the purpose of transplant and and given to the person who needs it. So living donation is a little bit separate from, from deceased donation and um but it's it's an important way that we can we can get people we can get people transplanted. Now your question had to do with with cost and um you know with for living donors who are are considering donation there there shouldn't really be cost to them. The the procedure is paid for by the recipient's insurance. Um, But, you know, part of the evaluation for the living donors is is they're not just evaluated by surgeons. They're evaluated by the surgeons, the internists, the social workers, financial advisors. There's a lot of thought that goes into making sure that their decision to donate, that their decision to give life to friends, family, and loved one isn't going to adversely affect them and to make sure that they they understand all the choices that they have in front of them. Right.
1: Okay. Well, now – but Dr. Allen, what what is what are the outcomes with this? You know, we've kind of taken people through this through through the waiting list and 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 why should they be considered consider themselves to be donors? Um, what are some of the outcomes associated with organ implants?
0: So, transplant outcomes are, are really excellent. Now, it's, it's, it's hard to say what the outcomes are across the board because, you know, outcomes for kidney transplant are different from liver transplant or different from heart and lung transplant. Um, as, as you know, the complexity of the organs and, and, and what they do is, is going to affect the type of outcomes that you can get. But what, what I think is, is important to realize... And what, what I would really like people to understand is that the people that we decide to transplant, the people who we decide need a transplant, even though there is risk associated with these transplants, we believe that the risk of leaving these people alone is even greater than all of the risk of transplant combined. So the people mm-hmm. that we want to transplant are really in in grave danger from the failure of the organs that they have and even though there's there's risk to transplant the risk of leaving these people alone is is even higher and so when we talk about doing this to to save lives it's it's really what it what it means um, there's a there's a risk of death on dialysis for patients with kidney failure or risk of death from liver failure you know clearly if if your heart is failing you're you're a risk from death for that and when these organs become available even though there's risks associated with the surgery, the, the risk of leaving these people alone is much, much higher. Right, right.
1: Uh, is there any organ uh, in particular that's a little more uh, riskier than the other, or, or, or has technology and expertise uh, kind of made that an equal playing field?
0: Well, I, I wouldn't describe the playing field as equal amongst the organs. Uh, you know, I think some mm-hmm. um, some of the organs are um, are more difficult to transplant. Some organs, uh, you know, there are. are more immunologic and so they have higher rates of rejection um, You know, some of the organs have what you might consider to be a, a fail safe so if we transplant a kidney and it doesn't work that patient can go back onto dialysis whereas if you transplant <clears throat> for a heart and that doesn't work that patient needs an emergency transplant or, or, or they're not going to survive um, I think in terms of the organs that are more challenging I, I would have to highlight the the lung transplants and the intestine transplants and the the, the reason those organs are are more challenging it's because even though these organs sit inside your body, these organs have to interface with the outside world. The intestine transplant has to interface with the, the things that you swallow and the food that you eat, and the lung transplant mm-hmm. has to interface with the air that you breathe. And so the different components and particles and, and things that might alert the immune system have to come and pass through and pass by these organs on a, on a daily basis. And that means these organs are more sensitive with regards to their the, the immune system and the immune system response, and, and these organs have a harder time with infection and rejection. Right, right.
1: So it has to do with uh, that there's some risk, and that kind of. But I think a lot of that, and then one question I, I uh, got quite a bit was I think a, a, th- a factor that also influenced this is the health or how well the patient, him or herself, takes care of themselves after the After the transplant, and that leads me to the next question well, are there some and I know this probably varies per organ, but are there some do's and don'ts after transplant, for example, like kidney um, you know should you you know are there limitations to alcohol and that kind of thing? are there some general do's and don'ts uh after transplant?
0: Yes, yes there are and and they change a little bit depending on the the organ that you're that you're dealing with. For example, um you know alcohol is a toxin to the liver. And a transplanted liver doesn't tolerate alcohol very well at all. And, and for mm-hmm. some patients, it was the alcohol that caused them to need the transplant in the first place. So alcohol after liver transplant is strictly prohibited, um, not just because it might put them at risk for their disease coming back, but because the transplanted liver has trouble dealing with alcohol. It doesn't respond like, like a normal liver. Um, you know, there are, I think the most important thing for, for patients to, to do after transplant is to keep close contact with the transplant team and to take all their <coughs> medications as prescribed. In order to keep people from rejecting the organs, we have to give them special medications to weaken the immune system. Now, you need a lot of this medication in the beginning and less and less over time, but always for the, the life of the transplant and, and oftentimes for the rest of the patient's life, they're going to need to take these, these medications, and these medications have consequence. And so taking the medications as prescribed and maintaining good communication with, with the transplant team is is really key. And and again, I, I'd like to emphasize, you know, you have to be careful with infection. You have to be careful around sick people. You know, we weaken the immune system. Mm-hmm. There's consequences of that. But really, we do these life-saving transplants to get people back into society, not to take them out of it. So we don't expect people to live in a bubble. We don't expect people to give up their jobs or to give up their pets, or, or we don't expect people to not be able to do the things they want to do. After transplant, people are able to travel. People are able to work. People who have retired go on and enjoy their retirement they really do get get a second chance at life little babies get transplanted they grow up they take their medication mm. they go to regular schools they can they can get married and have babies of their own and you know all this is possible after transplant so the pregnancy is possible having children is possible um working interacting in society in a normal function that's that's really the the type of life the transplant uh opens people up to
1: mm, mm excellent excellent well what about this scenario dr I uh, let's say if uh, uh if if someone if a if a potential donor let's say had uh hypertension and and had diabetes uh and they wanted to donate it they want to donate a kidney to their sibling and so at that time they were not necessarily considered a good donor uh but let us say that diabetes resolves the hypertension resolves uh is that potential donor now um, uh, a better donor or once you have a uh, kind of like a, a bad or not so good characteristic such as hypertension and diabetes for a kidney to be a kidney donor it, it's always going to be there uh, is, are there any uh, flexibility in the criteria
0: well there is some flexibility which is why I encourage anyone who's considering being a, a living donor that that they should step forward to, to seek more information and as patients or or people as people are able to alter their lifestyle that that does affect you know their ability to donate and their ability to to um you know save their friends and save their family and save their loved ones now the 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 question is a little bit nuanced it's it's a bit complicated because if somebody has had diabetes and hypertension for a long time, well mm-hmm. they could be on the border of needing a kidney themselves, and um, mm. it may not be a great candidate, that may not be a great organ to use to help someone, and taking that organ away might actually cause that person to then need, need a transplant. So if these chronic medical problems have been present for a long time, it's going to be less likely that that person is going to be step to step forward as a suitable donor. Now, one of the things is, in terms of living donation, really only about one out of every four people who volunteer to be a donor is able to actually donate, which is why I tell patients and potential donors and and, and their potential advocates that, you know, you you want as many people as possible to to volunteer and be considered, and then, you know, we can kind of go with the best option because there are lots of people who who really want to do it. They want to be the hero. They want to save their, their loved one but there's something in their history there's something in their social situation there's there's a medical issue that they've been been working on that that prohibits them from from doing it so um so on on the one hand like yes if you've had diabetes and hypertension but it's better it's still it's it's going to be um there's still a possibility that your organs may not that you may not be able to donate a kidney but that having been said I want to encourage everyone who is considering it to to make that known and to volunteer and and to step forward and um because it really every person has to be assessed as an individual and every that includes every donor and and every recipient and often the process of going through the evaluation and the education that comes with that might turn up other people who are interested and and you know there can be unintended consequences that lead to great outcomes right Right
1: well, you know i I um posted uh, a, a news segment that you were on early in the year regarding uh, transplant, and uh, one of the first uh, patients that was interviewed was the mother of a child, and you touched on this before, but tell us a little bit how about pediatric transplantation is 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 the, Is it pretty much the same uh, with regard to protocol is there any um, uh, uh, specific uh, things that's different with adult transplantation versus pediatric.
0: Well, it, it, it is, it is quite different actually. I, I think the, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I think pediatricians will, will jump up and down is, is when adult doctors start to say that, uh, pediatrics is just medicine for little people, um, because the, the children <laughs> right. really are, are unique and, and, and they do come with special challenges. For me as the mm-hmm. surgeon, there's, there's technical right. differences in the way we need to approach things. The, the vessels are smaller, the, mm-hmm. um, risk of, of Thrombosis or, or problems with the connections are, are higher. Um, the the way that the organs can be put in or the way that they can be used are, are different. Uh, there's there's issues with matching size and, and matching weight and maybe um, using organs from somebody who's bigger and putting something putting the the doing the transplant in someone who's smaller and, and vice versa. So mm. it, it really is a different world. And then when it comes to the, the post-operative care, there's different needs for the children. They you know they they don't. Need do well in an adult healthcare setting. And so to be in a mm-hmm. setting where the, the doctors and the nurses and all the staff are really focused on the specific needs of the of the children and, and how to get them through the process. One of the things that you often hear in, in pediatrics is that there's there's more than one patient as you have to deal with the mm-hmm. child. And you also have to make sure that, that the parents that their needs and their anxieties and their, their Concerns are, are are addressed as well when it comes to the the medications and the the post-operative care. There's the there's the, the parents are 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 an important part of whether that child gets their medications. And one of the things that's very common in pediatric transplant is as the children transition from being um, from being children, where the the parents are making Mm. sure that they're making their appointments and they're taking all their medications, to being teenagers, where they have to take on more and more responsibility for for their own well-being, there are increased rates of rejection as teenagers are apt to do what teenagers do, which is rebel. But in this case, Mm. (laughs) they've got a a medical problem that requires a certain amount of discipline, and discipline is something teenagers aren't, Mm. aren't famous for having.
1: Wow. Yeah. That is an excellent. That is an excellent point. Uh, it's more than one patient involved uh, with, with regard to this, and then the care giving, home care giving team or or family around that patient has to be um, has to be educated and has to be cooperative and see the big picture uh, with this with this uh, with that situation. Well, what about in my realm uh, as an oncologist? Uh, What about in the realm of cancer, Dr. Island? Um, Is that transplantation with regard to that? Uh, For example, I had a patient who uh, uh, had hypertension, had a stroke, and then uh, uh, pretty much um, is on dialysis. He wants to have a kidney transplant. Uh, However, he was recently found out to have prostate cancer. So how, how does uh, so I guess my overall question is how does transplant play uh, within the realm of cancer or is there no connection at all?
0: no that's it, it's it's a huge connection you know when when we mm-hmm. when we do transplants we, we really want to mm-hmm. provide these these opportunities to for a new life to as many patients as possible but there there's a problem and, and there's a catch that that when we weaken the immune system, uh, the medications that we use actually increases someone's risk for cancer and it also means that if someone has a cancer at the time of transplant the the cancer can spread the cancer can get worse and, and most people don't realize it, but the immune I mean, I know you realize it, but most people don't realize that the immune system is actively involved in in the fight against cancer. And so if somebody has an established cancer and we turn around and weaken the immune system, well, that that tips the balance of power in favor of the cancer, and that allows the cancer to to grow and, and to spread. So for somebody who has a cancer... It, it it's really, mm-hmm. in, in most of the situations, um, that kind of takes them out of the running for, for a transplant. Now, one of the things that's very interesting is there's a certain type of liver cancer where transplant is actually one of the best therapies for it. That if if we oh. catch the cancer early enough and the cancer is contained within the liver, then transplanting that liver is actually the best way to try to get that patient cured. Um, and so the the interface of of cancer and cancer therapies and transplant, it 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 really factors heavily into the decisions we make and, and the things that we have to do and whether patients can go straight into transplant, whether they need to wait before we consider transplant. And and like I said, for example, with with primary liver cancer, whether transplant mm-hmm. is the therapy that cures their cancer.
1: Wow. That is excellent. That is a good connection there. And I know your liver has been a, a, a big interest of yours, and uh, you're able to um, uh, publish, uh, you know, a lot of data within the peer-reviewed journals, but also uh, be able to lend your expertise, uh, you know, to these patients. Uh, are, are there any new and upcoming things that's coming up in the liver transplant world or in the transplant world period?
0: well there there's there's a lot of exciting development in transplant there's always always people looking into the the immune suppression and um, mm-hmm. because that's that's sort of the in a way it's like a penalty that's that 's paid for for transplant is that to get the transplant to work, we have to weaken the immune system and by weakening mm-hmm. the immune system we increase race risks of cancer we, we, there's increased risk of infection there are opportunistic infections that people become vulnerable to that they otherwise wouldn't have been vulnerable to. And so that if we can find a way to to get people transplanted and not need these medications, then, you know, that, that opens up an exciting new, new frontier. And, and whether that comes through what's called a, a tolerance protocol or whether that has to do with um, you know, g- gene mapping and 3D printing of organs. I mean, all all of these different avenues are being being worked on, and so I, I anticipate the the future for transplant is is bright. as we're, is we're going to be looking for some some pretty revolutionary changes coming in the next decade or so. Excellent, excellent.
1: Well, also on a positive note, Dr. Eileen, uh, I, I I when I looked at some data. There's a lot of people that registered last year to be donors. In fact, I noticed that in some states, at least some of the data show, that like 89% of the people in Montana registered as donors. Uh, 85% of the people uh, uh, that registered, 85% of the people registered in the state of Washington. So I think there's some states that do a little bit better regarding getting people to be uh, donors. What is the process and how? Uh, we've got a few more minutes here. What is the process of becoming a
0: donor? Sure, there's many opportunities to to be a donor. There's often for the when you're when you're getting an ID or a driver's license, you have an opportunity mm-hmm. to to check off that you're willing to be considered a, as a donor. Um, there is um, uh, www.yunos.org where you can you can declare that uh, you know you're giving consent. To, to be a donor, but really the, probably the most important thing is to have the discussion with your family and, and people who will be able to advocate for your position when, when you're not around or, or not able to advocate for yourself, um, and, and just make sure that, that your your family and, and your spouse knows what, what your wishes are so that, so that if the opportunity does come up where you, where you will have the chance to, to save all these lives, they'll, they'll know and be able to act in accordance with your wishes. Right.
1: That's, that's excellent. And then the other thing I noticed, Dr. Island, was that, you know, we've talked about this before, and this is big in the medical community. Uh, there are also some variations in donations with regard to ethnic groups. And uh, how have you, uh, your, your program at St. Luke's, and how is, does the transplant um, a world, how has that attacked that and may, you know, give out more information and education with regard to getting more, Uh, ethnic minorities involved in the donation.
0: Well, it there's there, it's it's addressed at, at many different levels. And first, it's it it is a problem, in, in that there are mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of uh, misperceptions about how the organs are going to be used, who the organs are going to go to, um, right? You know, whether or not the system is is fair, or whether or not the system is is biased. And 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 really, first I want people to understand that that the system is fair, and that and that it is not biased, and that and that it's really it's it's something that is excellent for the community as a whole. And and because Mm -hmm. it has to do with genetic matching and immunologic matching, when you have ethnic minorities choosing not to donate, that actually makes it a bit harder for ethnic minorities to get transplanted. Now, Mm -hmm. you don't have to match organs by race but you know genetics is is complicated and so when a certain group decides that no we're not going to participate in that that it does make it more difficult for members of that group to receive the to receive the, the benefits um, there's a lot of work that's been shown in terms of when families are are approached and questioned about donation if they can be approached by someone who is culturally similar to them they're more likely to respond positively if they're educated as to the the, the benefits of it I, I think that's I think that's great. Um, And and a lot has to do both in terms of the donation and even just the opportunities for a transplant is being educated about the opportunities to to have it. Uh, There's – Discrepancies in, for example, the African American community, not just in terms of African Americans donating, but African Americans being referred to transplant. And then once they're referred to transplant, there is a discrepancy in terms of them having access to living donation as as their friends and family sort of shy away from it. There there may be some, some distrust with that. And so there are systemic things that we can do to address it, but a lot of it is just engaging with the community, increasing levels of education um approaching people in ways in which they're comfortable and in which they're familiar and really just just helping people understand that it's 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 something that is is good for everybody excellent excellent
1: well dr Island you know i'm so glad you're able to join us today this is a very needed uh, this is a topic that's very needed to be discussed, to be educated on, based you know, particularly based on what you just told us, particularly in in the in in, in the ethnic minority communities, but also in general. But I think we, have overall as a country, has made some progress, but there's a obviously a whole lot you know that we can do. So I, I'm uh, encouraging everyone to go to the Department of Health and Human Services website to get more information. Contact your local hospital with regard to this and become more educated on this topic. But, Dr. Island, I'm so glad that you're able to join us and lend your expertise. Uh, We got to have you back at some point at a later date to talk about another uh, topic within the transparent world, but I want to greatly thank you for being able to join us here on the weekly wellness show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to do it. Great, great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes another episode of the week on the show. If you missed any of this, you can always listen to it on podcasts. Uh, Don't forget to tune in next week. We'll have another exciting topic. So taking us out is a group of jazz artists collectively known as In Groove. So until next week, we encourage you to be happy. Be healthy and be kind.